This episode is brought to you by Milne Feeds. Milne Feeds have been the leading provider of livestock feed in WA for over 100 years and is now proudly servicing the Northern Territory too. Their early weaner product is a nutritionally balanced pellet for feeding to pastoral calves and young weaners and has been developed with their high fibre technology to reduce the risk of acidosis. Milne Feeds also have a range of products available for beef and dairy cattle, sheep and horses. Find out more at milne.com.au. You're listening to the Central Station Podcast where we bring you true stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. This podcast is brought to you by Ariat Australia, the perfect choice for the tough jobs. Ariat boots and clothing work hard, look good, and are so comfortable there's never a need to slow down. Visit ariat.com.au today. Robbie Schmidt is a self-confessed rat bag. The Alice Springs identity spent his formative years travelling between large properties in South Australia and the Northern Territory, so it's not surprising that he ended up working as a station manager. But... Then Robbie and his partner chose to step away from working in agriculture for five long years. In this episode, Robbie shares yarns about the experiences which have shaped his life and why he came back to life on the land. He also speaks about his passion for nurturing a community around the sport of Bronco branding and why he has chosen to leave Alice Springs after all these years. To start, Robbie recalled a tale from his childhood which explains the title of Ratbag. I was probably a bit of a ratbag at times, I think. Yeah, obviously, um, I was on the school of the air. I know that we went through a few governesses. One day, we had one governess, she said to us, she was going to shift the hose on the lawn. And it would have been oh, a couple of hours later, and sister and thinking, I don't know where the governess has got to, she's taking a long time to shift the hose. Anyway, then mum come down, oh, an hour or two later, going off ahead of us, and yeah, the governess had actually not shifted the hose, she'd packed the bags and left. <laughs> so, so yeah, but yeah, just a typical kid that just loved, I didn't like being inside, so I hated school, and yeah, loved being outside, loved going off doing jobs with dad and working with cattle and horses and all that sort of stuff, so yeah. Yeah. And so where was it that you were growing up that required you to go through school of the air? Uh, Witchley Station was sort of the, was, I went there when I was 18 months old, which was 60 k's northeast of a little place called Carrotton in the Flinders Ranges. So even, I guess to me, relative to where we are today in Central Australia, um, to me down down south, I'm using the little air quotes here, doesn't seem that remote to me or that you'd need to go to school of the air, that you would just be able to go into town to go to school. So, but that was still, obviously still a place where... Yeah, because it was 60 k's from, and there was no school bus or anything that come out that 
in our direction. So that's, yeah, um, how we ended up on school there. And mum was actually, well, I think she still is, was the longest parent to be on school there at Port Augusta. Okay, so it's school, Port Augusta yeah. school there. Yeah. Wow, yeah. and so how come she, is that because her children were so far apart? Yeah, because there was my sister and myself, there was um, 15 months between us and then I had another two younger brothers um, like between Clayton and myself, there's eight years, and then between Brett and myself, there was eleven years. So obviously, so, after having you, she needed a bit of a break before she was game yeah, to go again. Yeah, Is that I, what you're saying? I don't know if that was the case. I think the other two might have been sort of mistakes, or one of them was anyway. <laughs> Pleasant surprise, but yeah. <laughs> Clayton's so, going to listen to this too. <laughs> so now there was, and my little brother here still always tell people. He said, "Yeah, I'm only here because I was a mistake." But, yeah. <laughs> So, That's funny because I think Benny Hayes is the youngest of his family and he's, he's a mutual friend of ours and he, his story, the line that he lives by is that my parents just kept going until they found one they liked. So <laughs> Alrighty, eh? it's funny how your perspective can really, people can have different perspectives on being the youngest child. Yeah. Yeah. So obviously I did all my school up until year seven on school there yeah. and then, yeah, then I went away to school, but yeah. And so that property name, did you say it was Witchity? Witchity, yeah. Kind of like Witchity Grub. Yeah, like the spelling's a bit different, but yeah, yeah same okay. sort of, yeah. Now, there's yeah. a bit of a connection there, so that, I don't think we've mentioned that property specifically on this podcast before, but the family that own that property, one of their children has done three episodes, and so who is that and what is the connection? So, it uh, was owned by the Heaslips, uh, like Grant Heaslip, which is um, obviously Tanya Heaslip's father. I think they bought the which the, I reckon, like his father bought it, I reckon it was in the late 40s. Mm. Yeah. So it's, and it's still in the family now. They still have it now. So, so we've, we've had Tanya on the podcast three times. And I think the first one was talking about her book, An Alice Girl, which tells the story of when her parents came from down near Carrollton Way with Wichity and they had that place and then they came up and took up the lease on Bond Springs, which is just north of Alice Springs or just around Alice Springs. And I didn't even know until today that when we sat down and worked it out that, yeah, that there was that connection there, that your father, when they came up here, your father managed Wichity for them. Yeah, so when they first came up here, I think it was for the first four years, there was a fellow called Mike Kimber that managed Wichity for him. And then when he left, and then that's when Dad took it over, and that was in uh, November 73. And how long did your dad stay there for? He was there for um, 40, I'm pretty sure it was 42 or 43 years. God, he, he would have clocked up some long service leave. Yeah, yeah. 40 years on one place is very impressive. So, and then obviously he used to come up to Bond Springs and um, used to do the mushroom for him. Or he'd come up the first two weeks he'd spend breaking in horses for mustering, and then, yeah, and then after that they'd go mustering. So he used to always come up, I reckon it was the end of March, and then he'd go, they'd go home usually middle of July. They'd go back to Wichita. And I know that the first year he'd come up was in, I reckon it was in 70, either 75 or 76. Yeah. What, talk about having the best of both worlds. So he's down on a place down in South Australia near Carrollton, and then for a couple of months a year he gets to go up to the territory and have adventures up there. Yeah, and he, he used to love it up here. Yeah, he, he always said it was 
good good fun. The the horses at Bond Springs, they had a bit of a um a streak in them where they used to buck pretty well, and that that sort of that was yeah he liked that. It sort of was a bit of adventure for him. It's he's actually got some old footage of them going out to mustering camp and first thing in the morning with these horses and yeah there's some pretty pretty wild looking footage of them horses into it big time that would be so cool like that so, would be on the old kind of, that would i guess it would look old because it is old like yeah, in the 70s that yeah, kind of film yep yeah. and um he also Witchley at the time ran a lot of sheep not many cattle so and dad hated sheep although he was there for a long time with sheep he still hated them Compared to cattle, so he that's why he liked coming to Bond Springs as well. And then I think it was in about eighty, I reckon it was about eighty eight, was when down at which they were having trouble with dogs getting into the sheep big time. And um, in the end, they got rid of the sheep and went all cattle. Now, yeah. while this episode is about you and your story, I do want to take this opportunity to find out a little bit more about your dad because we were talking just off air before and your dad's got a pretty fascinating story too and had a pretty interesting start to his life. So can you just tell us a little bit about him and yeah. where he started out? So he was born in a little place in Western Australia called Kew. He had 14 siblings. He was the second youngest and he was also... Um, he had, I reckon it was uh, six or seven brothers, and he was the first one to make it to 50. Um, the rest of them, there was a bit of a heart problem amongst them, and yeah, a lot of um, had heart attacks. And then his his father passed away when he was only about five years old, and I think Dad got himself into a bit of trouble. When his father passed away. They shifted to a place called Big Bell, which I understand was a mining town not far from Kew, like a gold mine. And um, his mum owned and ran a fish and chip shop there. And he was always getting himself into trouble. And then he got kicked out of school when he was, I think, 11 years old. So at 12 years old was when he went out to work. Um, and he went out to a place called Millie Millie, um, which was near Mecathara. And then he was there for seven years. Um, then he'd come across, he had a sister that was a fair bit older than him that lived in Adelaide. So he'd come over to see her. And then I think he went back for another couple of years and then he yeah, come back over and decided to get a job in South Australia. Um, he went to a place called Commonwealth Hill. He was there for only a week. He said it wasn't his cup of tea. So he pulled the pin from there and then he went, then to work for my, my mum's father at Oroprina Station, south of Blinman in the Flinders Ranges, and that's where obviously you met mum too. So. Just, you know, he went to work at 12. Like, I know people did do things a lot younger back in the day, but that's, it's, it's just think about a 12-year-old now going out to work on a station, like there's no way. Yeah, and that's it. And, yeah, so he had a, um, yeah, like a pretty... I guess tough life when he was younger and he tells a story of when he was 21 when he first come to Adelaide he actually um decided to buy a car so he goes into a Holden dealership and says to oh mate that was in the dealership he said that car out the front there he said obviously that's for sale he said that new one he said yeah he said yeah you're right mate it's for sale but he said um 
how old are you? And he said, yeah, I'm 21. He said, yeah, well, you wouldn't have the money to buy a car like that. And he said, well, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, look at you, you're only 21. And Dad said, oh, rightio, so how much is the car? And he, I don't know, I forget how much it was, and he told him. And he said, yeah, well, he, he said, don't waste my time, get out of here. So Dad said, rightio. So he obviously went to down the road to another dealership, Holden, got, bought this Holden ute, got him to write out the receipt, had written cash on there, and he went back to the dealership and showed the receipt. And he said, here, mate, have a look at this. And old mate sort of eyes lit up and his jaw dropped and he sort of, and Dad said, yeah, it was my gain, your loss. So, yeah. Um, have you ever seen the movie Pretty Woman with Julia Roberts? Yeah. That is like the Australian outback version of that scene in Pretty Woman where, like, they don't want to sell her the clothes. Oh, I, and then she comes back in the next day with, like, all the bags of clothing and she's like, big mistake. Yeah. That's exactly what your dad was, like, the first Pretty Woman. So, but, yeah, and that's because, and like he said, when you were 12 years old, he said, and you work, and he said, you're getting your, like, obviously back then he was on a, Decent, like a probably man's wage. And he said, when you're 12 years old, you've got nothing else to spend your money on. He said, apart from boiled lollies. Wow. So, yeah. That's so good that he was able to hold on to it and save it. And yeah. And he, um, like back then, I think the legal age to drink was 21. But even he said, even when he was in his mid twenties, he still didn't, he didn't drink a hell of a lot. He said, yeah, it wasn't until he sort of got older that he, um, yes. Started obviously drinking, but yeah. Wow. So just, I guess, out on your own from a very early age, independent, working. Yeah. So so when he came to work for the He Slips, and I guess by then, if you were born, or no, you were, did you say you were 18 months old by the time you guys moved yeah. to Richity? Yeah, So he'd already started his family, and you're the second child of yep. four. When he would go away for those times to up to Bond Springs up here around Alice, did you guys come with yeah, you? Yeah, we used to always go. Um I remember back then, obviously, the road from um, down to Wichita up to Alice Springs was where the road sort of followed the Gann line along, and that was back when it was a narrow gauge and used to come up through Hawker, Maree, Udnadatta. And then, obviously, when once you got Udnadatta, the train used to go sort of straight north, whereas the um, Udnadatta track used to go across to just north of Marla. And then, then you'd follow the Stuart Highway up and it was, it was dirt. And back then we just had an old Holden Kingswood. Dad used to pull a trailer behind it. All us like kids would get in and with mum and dad and off we'd go. And, um, used to take us about, I think it was a bit over two days to come up and dad would have all his horse breaking gear and then we'd have all our swags and all that stuff on. And then obviously because we were on score the air. At Port Augusta, so then we'd still do that while we were at Bond Springs. What do you so, remember from those days being out at Bond Springs? Obviously, there's there was a lot of the staff used to come back every year. I remember different ones of them, and there was it was always like there was always a lot of people there. Mum used to help out with the cooking, and I know that most most nights she'd be cooking for twenty odd people, and because I actually had a. At Bond Springs, they used to have a meet, like they had, there was an abattoir on Bond Springs called Wamboden, and then obviously they'd take the carcasses back to Bond Springs, they had a big meat room set up there and they used to break them down, and so they had butchers and that as well, and yeah. So no, it was, um, and like I said, I just remember, we, 
used to go out with Dad a fair bit in the camp, like my sister and myself, and a couple of times I remember he come back into the house at Bond Springs and he said, oh, look, Lorna, he said, we've got to split the camp. Um, we've got cattle coming in. They, what they used to do is when they used to do a round at Bond Springs, they'd start on the west side. And as they were um, going, they'd pull all their um, like their fats and their truckers off and, and um, they'd, they'd take them on to the next bore and then muster there and then and they'd keep coming around. And then at Bond Springs, they used to have a big sale at Bond Springs itself at the end of the round. So a couple of times they had to split the camp. They had cattle coming in from two different boars, and so Dad had come and said, look, Lorna, we've got to split the camp. And Mum said, so what's that got to do with me? Well, I want Rhonda and Rob to come out to give us a hand. They're going to be part of the camp. And like we were only <laughs> probably nine, ten years old, and he expected us to come out and do a job of a bloke that was like an adult. So it wasn't like a bit of a school holiday fun trip up north like you were? No. There you, were times where you were there to work. Yeah. And he, yeah, he'd say it and he'd expect you to work too. And I yeah. guess while that might sound a bit wild to us, like say you're nine or ten, he went to work full time at 12. So to him well, in his mind, it's probably not that big a difference. No, and, that's, and that was probably the reason why. And like he, he was pretty tough on us. Like he, yeah, like when we were out there, we didn't. Get no special services or anything. We were just treated like one of the other blokes. And if we didn't perform, well, he ripped it into us big time. But in saying that, we respected him. And he, at the time, he, at the time, he taught us a fair bit with, to do with cattle and with horses and that. So yeah, we, um, appreciated that. And yeah. Tell so. me about your first pony that your dad gave you. Yeah. I had a, um, when I was, oh, when we f- were first went to Wichita, there was actually Hayslips left a little black pony there, and he was a little bit of a pig. He used to take off on us all the time. So he, Dad said, "He said um, I'm going to get you two some new horses." So we said, "Rightio." So he um, had a he had one mare, the oh, little filly that was out of a, one of his racehorse mares, and then there was um, an uncle next door that bred these mad Arabs. And so he went across and got one of them. Well, I ended up with the uh, filly out of the racehorse, and she she was good. Dad broke her in, and I remember I would have been probably four or five years old when he handed her to me, and she'd only been broken in for probably three months. <laughs> I was expected to ride her, and I was, I was lucky. She was quiet, and she was good. Whereas my sister, she was a bit unlucky. Her, her horse used to give it to her all the time and, yeah, throw her off, and, and Dad would say to her, Get back on that horse. Don't let it beat you. And I remember one one day there. I think it was nine times she got ditched. And yeah, we're out much. And he kept saying to her, and her to her credit, she'd get back on it. Yeah. So, but that's how it was. And I guess we learnt to ride <laughs> that way. Um, yeah. In the end, she obviously started beating her horse. And yeah. And then once he realised that she was sticking to him, well, that was it. She he give up trying to ditch her. Then. So. That's, um I just think, so you're a four or five year old that's been given a three month broken, you know, so pretty green young horse that's not got much education on it. Honestly, at the age of 30, you could give me the same horse and I probably wouldn't have done very well on it. So I just love that you're given that as a four or five year old. Yeah. And that you stuck with it. And the funniest part was, and I can still, I've still got, um, photos of it. Um, dad, he was in, when he was in Western Australia at 
worked at Millie Millie, he, he, um, the people that owned it must have had racehorses there and there was a big race meeting at, oh, there was one at Mecathar and I think there was another big one at a place called Landor. Mm-hmm. And, yep. um, dad loved racehorses. Oh, he, he used to take horses to Landor and, um, like he trained them himself and he used to ride them as well. And, um, there was a fellow that lived with my grandma at Geraldton, an old fellow called Paddy. Well, at the time, he was a jockey, and Dad learnt, that's where he learnt to ride, was from him. So when it come to us as kids learning to ride, we didn't actually have a normal saddle. We learnt to ride in jockey pad. And I can remember, I would have been, I reckon, I would have been nine years old before I got a proper saddle. We used to go out mushrooming these jockey pads, and yeah. And because Dad, obviously, he had, there was around sort of the Witchley, there was bush race meetings that he used to go to, so he always had horses in training. So um, obviously, he'd use these jockey pads as well, but yeah. You must be a sticky so, rider then. If you learnt to ride and not much, oh, by the time you got put in a real saddle, you must have thought this was like being trapped or something. Yeah, you know, that, and that's, Dad reckons that's the reason why he did it. My sister and myself always reckoned it was because he was too tight to buy the saddle. <laughs> <laughs> but he reckons, no, I, I did it for you so you got your balance. He was probably right in a way too, but yeah. So. Yeah, it would be. I remember the first time I grew up riding English, so it was all like your English all purpose saddles. And the first time I got in a stock saddle and there's like just so much extra leather and there's like rolls in places. And I just was like, oh, I feel like I'm in a cage. Like, and then when I went back to an English saddle, I was like, I feel like I'm naked and unprotected and I'm going to like fall off here. So it must be, it must have been quite bizarre for you when you did get into a saddle. Yeah. Like a it was, saddle. it was different. And then, yeah, but no, it was, um, yeah, like I said, it was interesting. So, and so that, I guess if your dad stayed at Wichita for 40 years, um, and he got there when you were quite young. So that would have been all throughout your childhood and your teenage years that you would have gone up to Bond Springs pretty much every year. Yeah, he he was did the mush. I think the last time he went up there, I reckon it was in uh, 96, I reckon, 97 thereabouts. Mm. Yeah. So yeah. that would have been – so, yeah, all your young years would have been involving these trips. Did that – um, and I know you've stayed in the industry ever since. Is that what kind of um, gave you a taste of what of wanting to stay on and, and become a jackaroo or be in this yeah. industry, or was it kind of the time down at Wichita? No, it was probably more with at Bond Springs, and that and we loved it up here. And, and I always said, like we always said to Mum, that when we left school, that we we're always going to come back up here. My sister did, and then it was in probably when I was in. Um, I reckon I was in year 11 at school, so 88. So it was a bicentennial year for Australia. They had a, um, they did a droving. Uh, they called it Droving 88. It was actually a fella from Camelwill, an f- old fella called Pick Willets. He took cattle from Newcastle Waters across the Longreach. And I it feel was, like I've heard about this in a few was, other episodes. It was when they started, I reckon it was when they got there was when they did the opening for the Longreach Stockman Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. Anyway, at the time I was, I was going to school, like when I, from a um, high school, I went to school at um, a little place called Waru in the southern Flinders. We boarded with my grandparents and went to school there. And there was an ag teacher, he come up, to me and said, oh, have you seen this? And I said, what is it? And he said, oh, there's, they're looking for 
um, young people from the age of 15 to, I reckon it was 19, to go on this drove in 88. And I said, oh, righty, eh? And he said, yeah, there's 200 positions. And I said, oh, right, what do you have to do to do it? And he said, well, you've got to go, obviously, write what you're interested in. And, and then he said, then you've got to go and do a, prove that you can ride a horse and all this stuff. So I said, oh, righty, eh? So are you, are you interested? And I said, oh, I guess I might as well give it a crack. So there was, I think it was 9,000 people applied for this 200 positions. And I happen to be lucky and I got one of them. So for part of it, they, there was, um, like blokes that were doing the similar sort of stuff with it on stations in the Barclay and that. So, so we went to, um, we went Alroy. So I flew to, flew to Mount Isa. Um, and then there was another, I think it was another 16 kids from the age of, yeah, like I said, 15 to 19. Um, at the time I was, I reckon 16. And, um, yeah. And we went out onto a station called Alroy and we were there for, I reckon it was two and a half weeks and it was, yeah, good fun. So then when I come home at the time, there was a, um, the fellow Gavin Miller that was managing it was looking for blokes. So when I come home, I secretly <laughs> applied for a job there and, um, got the job. But then I showed mum and she said, no, you're not leaving. She said, you gotta, she said, oh, yeah, they've got to get an apprenticeship or do year 12. And I said, oh, righty, eh? So end of that year, I applied for an apprenticeship. I actually got one with Santos at Moomba, but then found out after you had to be 18 to work there and I was only 17. So no, I was 16. So then reluctantly, I did year 12, but I, yeah, I just wanted to go bush back out to a station and yeah. So then I went from there to ag college. I was meant to do a two year course at Catherine. And then um, after 12 months, I got sick of it. I was sick of just, like, doing book work. And so I told mum that it wasn't going to, that the following year wasn't going to happen. So that they'd, she, that they'd pulled the course yeah, on you? Yeah. No more? Yep. So she said, oh, that's the case. She said, you better look for a job. And I said, yeah, by the way, I've said I've already done that. And I've got a job on the Barclay next year at Alexandria Station. But, yeah. So you go, Mum, I'm at college halfway through, but um, yeah, they've just decided to can the course and yeah, I guess I can't go to college anymore. And your mum, I, I guess I love it. She's so trusting. She's not like, I'm going to call them and see what's going on. Because if she had, you would have been yeah, in the shit. Cause... I would have been in big trouble. Yeah. Yeah. So then obviously the end of that year was um, there was a school there reunion. And at the same time, the same weekend happened to be our college graduation. So I went and saw the principal and I said, look, I can't be here for the graduation. I've got to go to a school there reunion. And I knew there was mates that I went to school there, like that I'm still mates with now, that Colin Greenfield, Gerard Sheen, fellas like that. And uh, Colin Greenfield, I want to say episode 78, I don't know. He's been on the pod. There's a, we're going to find out there's a lot of connections already that have been on the podcast. That So, yeah. So down we went and... And then the principal kept saying, no, we want you at the graduation. I said, too bad, mate, I'm leaving. So I went down to Port Augusta School of the Air thing and did the reunion and had a hell of a time. And and then it um, would have been January. The actual principal rang 
rang mum and and said, "Oh, we're a bit um, bit disappointed that Robbie's not coming back next year." And she said, "Well, he's not going back because the course hadn't um, been ran." And then um, he said, "No, oh, that's not altogether true." But by then, I'd applied for a job, and and um, I had Dad on my side then. Done the shifty on yeah. Mum. So, um, and then found out after I'd won all these awards for that year, and that's why I was a bit disappointed that I wasn't going back. But anyway, that's how it goes. Now, I'm not going to let you. I'm not going to move on to the next part of your life just yet because I know there's a few. Yarns from your time at Ag College. Not only were you an amazing student who was won all these awards, but um, there was another side to you, wasn't there, Robbie? Yeah, we used to have some pretty, pretty wild nights. That's probably one reason why, in the end, why I decided I'd leave there because um, I was probably getting into a bit of trouble every now and then. Yeah, one night, oh, we we used to do it. Oh, it didn't just happen one night. It happened a few nights. We used to sneak out. Um, we got to know a cab driver at, at Catherine and, um, the same thing. We used to sneak a bit of rum in there every now and then and have a few parties and whatever else. And, and, um, there was a culvert down, uh, there was a big oval at the college and there was a culvert down from this college, um, from the oval. And we used to get the taxi driver to come out there and he'd bring a, bottle of rum out or whatever for you and then yeah and then we um used to always sit down in this culvert and have a few drinks and we aren't you finished your bottle you just chuck the empty bottle in underneath the culvert anyway a couple of times we said oh we can you pick us up from there and he said oh yeah no worries so we'd sneak into town so one we used to go to the um oh, it's bar called crossroads and there was a nightclub in there called wings so we snuck in there one night and we happened to get into a bit of a punch up and there was four of us. Well, um, two of them, two of them got locked up. Myself and another mate, we managed to get out the door without getting locked up. And, um, we jumped in a taxi and scooted straight back to college and snuck in there. And then, yeah, then we rang another mate. His brother lived, um, in Catherine and we said, look, so and so got, um, we think of locked up in there. So he said, no worries. He said, um, so he went around and found out they had. So then he, um, met us and we snuck back in there and got him out and got him back to college before, <laughs> before anyone found out. I, like it was daylight by the time we got back in there, but we managed to sneak back in without anyone finding out. And yeah, so we never got into trouble for it, but yeah. So you're a grade A student and also a grade A so. troublemaker. I don't know about troublemaker. We just happened to be at the wrong spot at the wrong time. Oh, sure, sure. But yeah. So. A likely story. But yeah. And then I remember the same thing another, another night. Um, it was actually with the, with the college. Um, there was a fellow that was a deputy principal at the time, Brian Hill. Um, there was him, myself and a couple of other students. We went up to Darwin for the Darwin show and, um, on the Friday of the show, we obviously did all the showing for the cattle and we had a pretty, pretty good day. We won grand champion heifer and then, um, one of the bulls was the same. So obviously the college got X amount of money and, and then we went and, um, some of that money was put over the bar. So we had a pretty big afternoon at the bar and, um, and leading up to that, when we were doing the, um, showing of the cattle, we had one, 
Brahmin bull that used to get a bit cranky, and he actually into I was leading him and he into me and had me jam me up against the side of the shed and um and then the same Brian come over to help us out and he ended up getting rubbed up and down the shed as well and and there was a goat um judging thing and there must have been cameras there for that. Um and next thing that they put it on us getting rubbed up against his shed by this bull was a bit of a embarrassment actually at the time. But yeah. So then that night, um after we went to the bar and then they had a um, concert at um, it was James Blundell was playing it in that um, thing at the Darwin um, showgrounds and um, yeah, myself and another mate, we started wrestling and next minute we looked up and there was a couple of cops there and they were sort of waving at us to like come here. So we went over and, and we said, what's going on? And they said, well, um, what are you blokes up to? And we said, oh, we're just having a bit of a wrestle. And they said, oh, can we see your ID? And at the time, I'd just turned 18. And, um, but my mate, he was underage. And, and I'm thinking, shit, this bloke's underage. I wonder what's going to happen here. But then next minute, he's, they're calling this fella Troy. And I was about to say, well, wait up. His name's not Troy. It's Ben. But then I thought, no, I'll just roll with Troy, see what happens here. And turned out what had happened was there was another mate from college at, was 18, but he didn't come up for the weekend. So, and obviously back then you didn't have a photograph of your license. Oh, really? Nah, it was just a piece of paper. And, um, so he's taken old mate's license with him to say that he's 18. So he's got, so we got, got away with it anyway. Um, we said, oh, so we explained what was going on. We said, oh, we're right. And he said, oh, we're just making a decision whether we lock you up for the night or what we do. But anyway, we managed to sweet talk our way out of it and got out of it once again. So yeah, I love that because so, you could not get away with that today. Nah, nah. And then the same thing because I was obviously we were in Darwin and and um, the next day there was a next morning there was a um, carcass competition on that we had cattle in for the um, from the college. So we went to that and it was a champagne breakfast. And yeah, that got a bit messy. Anyway, myself and. Um, a couple of mates, we got back to the showgrounds at, uh, would have been lunchtime and we were, we'd had a fair few champagnes and sort of a bit inebriated. And we went over to sort out, um, or to make sure the cattle were right and end up laying down in the stalls with them, went to sleep. And, um, and then the next day we went back to, um, Catherine and I rang mum and I said, oh, she said, I hear that you've been in Darwin. And I said, oh, how do you know that? And she said, oh, I hear that you were passed out drunk. I said, where to? She said, in your cattle stalls. And I said, oh, how do you know that? Well, it turned out there was people that used to live down not far from um, where mum and dad were that had actually shifted to Kakadu, and they must have come through the, um, like, where the cattle were and saw us passed out in the thing and then, yeah, rang mum and told her. <laughs> Your son is a big shame job. So, yeah, but so I got a bit of a trouble with parents with that, but anyway. Yeah, I bet she loved getting that phone so, call. But I said to her, I said, I'm 18, there's nothing you can do about it. So, yeah. Just going to let you go out into the world. That's oh, it. Your poor mum. So, you after college, you, you went out and started working and you've been around a bit, worked in a few different places between the Territory and South Australia. Yep. What are the standout places for you? The one that it was 
the one that or oh, the first place I went to Alexandria that was a that was an eye opener um, because it was so big, as in um, big numbers of cattle they ran um, sixty five thousand head. Who was the manager there. there at the time? Ross Peatling. Okay, I was wondering if you were going to yeah. say that. Yep. Yeah. So um, Ross started there. I reckon it was a week before I started there. It oh wasn't wow! Long. Yeah. Yep. So Ross and myself about the same time. So I spent. A bit over two years there, and then like I spent most of it in the number one camp. So we spent most of the time out at camp, um, like um, sort of from beginning of March through until end of November. We we're out at camp the whole time. Um, we'd come in. I reckon it was usually for a week or so before Mount Isa rodeo, and that's when. We like finished first round and then you'd swap all your horses over ready for second round and we used to start that straight after Mount Isa. So yeah, did that for, yeah, two and a half years. And then I was actually, Ross offered me a, um, head stockman's job in the Wiener camp. I reckon that was for in 2003, but I sort of didn't really, there was blokes there that were a lot older than myself and I was only, 19 or 20 at the time. Oh, so you mean 1993? Yeah. Not, yeah, you said 2003. Oh, sorry. Gosh. I, I was like, wow, head stockman at like 30 something nah, years old. 90, 93. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I was, um, um, and I just said, nah, I'm not, um, yeah, I was, yeah, 20. I was going 21 that year. So I said, yeah, I said, no, nah. I said, I'm too young for this. I said, I don't sort of want to take that responsibility on yet. So in the end, I decided too that I wanted to do a bit more than just cattle and horse work. Um, there was other things that I was sort of wanting to get a bit more experience with. So that's when I decided to leave. Um, and then I'd come down to a little place called Bushy Park out of Alice Springs. And yeah, I was spent till the, I think it was the end, end of that year. No, the beginning of the next year. And then the mob that I actually, that come from down um, at Carrotton, not far from, well, that, like, that was the uh, closest town to Wichley, um, Williams's, and they had started acquiring a few places in the north, and and I heard they were pretty good to work for, and plus I knew them. And so I rang them, I heard there was a job going on one of their places, and they said, yeah, so then I went from there down to Wooltana and did two years for them there. And, yeah, I, I, they were a brilliant company to work for. Um, then in 96, I went away, uh, come back up to Eldunda, um, in the territory of 12 months. And then they rang me again and said, Oh, do you want to come back to Wiltana? And I said, Oh, yeah. I said, Actually, I might. So I went back. Um, I spent another three years with them. Um, and then they were going through a split up with the family. There was some family was staying in, some were getting out. Um, and it looked like they were going to sell Wooltana. So I said, oh, if that's the case, I said, I'll, um, go and do something different. So I come up and to Mount Skinner, which was owned by my brother-in-law and sister to do some mustering with them. Uh, the day we drove in, it started raining. It kept raining. It kept raining <laughs> and didn't stop. Mustering didn't happen. So in the end, I said to Spook, I said, well, I said, I might go south. I said, um, I said, I was talking to James Oldfield. He wants a hand to muster at Mungarani. So he said, no, no worries. So down, down I went. 
and um, then went to Mungaranee no sooner got there and it started raining. Didn't stop. Now, in amongst all this time, I just noticed you just said when we got to Mount Skinner, it's because you had a partner. Oh, then. yeah, I did. That happened. So uh, <laughs> let's let's not skip over the love story here. Give me all the goss. That happened while I was at, uh, at Wiltana. Um, obviously, the um, local town or the closest town to Wiltana was Lee Creek, which was a uh, mining town. Um, they mined coal there that um, that was sent from train to run a powerhouse at Port Augusta. So anyway, I went in there with a couple of mates and I ran at a couple of mates' places and um, we'd ran out of rum. So we said, oh, we'll go to the pub and get a bottle, eh? So we said, oh, yeah, no worries. So down we went. And then there was a fair few in the front bar, so we ended up in there and then um, having a few drinks with them. And then I said, oh, shit, I forgot to get my bottle of rum. And I went to get it and they said, no, nah, sorry, take away shut. So I said, oh, righty, eh? So anyway, then there was this um, girl that came up to me and she said, oh, she said, um, I've got a bottle of rum and I'm heading around to a party. You want to come around there? And I said, oh, yeah, I guess so. And that happened to be Darren. So yeah, everyone always said I went to the bottle of rum and ended up taking Darren home instead. <laughs> <laughs> now, does that mean that Darren picked you up then if she was like, hey, I've got a bottle and you can come to this party with me? Oh, yeah, well, I guess you could say that, yeah. <laughs> Well, Darren's so, not here right now. She's inside the house, so we'll just go with that story. So, yeah, so that's when, yeah, that started. And then, um, yeah, then I uh, would have been beginning, or well, before we went at Mount Skinner, was her and myself got engaged. Yeah, what's that, 22 years ago, and we actually never never have got married. We've um, been engaged the whole time. Oh, it's a good thing you know so, a good uh, <coughs> wedding photographer. But yeah, So it's uh, probably time to pull so, the pin on that one, hey? Yeah, we'll, not, we'll not pull the pin, though. That probably, sounds wrong. Pull the finger out, I mean. Probably a bit, probably a bit late now. <laughs> nah, never. M- Mum always reckons if we got married now, things would go pear-shaped. So. I have heard that story before. You know, people have been together for however many years and they finally get married and within a year they get divorced. Yeah. But last year I did photograph a wedding out with a couple from Murray Down Station, so Lisa Kimlin and Luke oh, James. Yeah. Yep. And they'd been engaged, I think, for 19 years, um, three kids and everything, and... Yeah, or had so. a very awesome wedding photographer and still happy today. So I don't know, you wouldn't be the first to do it. Come yeah, on. I don't know. We've spoken about it, but I don't think it's ever going to happen. So. Oh, that's right. But, I'll, yeah. I'll just keep planting the seeds and passively, aggressively marketing myself to you guys. So, yeah. So <laughs> so you went to the pub to get a bottle of rum and you left with your future... Future. Long-term fiancé. Yeah. <laughs> Mother of your children. Yeah. And so, so. You, yeah, so you went up. To Mount Skinner, which is where your sister was, yeah, um, with her husband on and, his family place, and then yeah, obviously it was too wet there, so then we went um, to do any mushrooms. So then we ended up at back at Lee Creek, and then I went to Mungaranee, and um, same thing. First day I went there to start mushroom cattle at rain, um, and we ended up the fair bit for there. We ended up three inches, and the same thing. Mungaranee being in the desert like it is, it's only on about probably. Five inch rainfall, so three inches was a big rain for that. So were you considering yourself a bit of a rain man at the time? Like I, you go to Mount Skinner, it rains. You go to Mungaringi. No, well, I wouldn't rains. say that. I think in two thousand, it was didn't hurt where you went. It rained. That was a good. Oh, year. okay. I was gonna yeah. say I would have been walking around with my chest no. puffed out, being like, "Look at me, no. I'm bringing the rain." It was a really, really good year. So then, yeah, we went there, and then it was too wet to muster cattle, so we ended up spending, I think it was two or three weeks running brumbies. Um, 
and got, yeah, got a whole heap of them. And then once we did finish doing that, then we ended up back mustering. And, and then, um, August that year was, um, first daughter was born. So we went down to Adelaide for that or to, um, actually to Gawler. And while I was there, I got a phone call from Tony Williams and, um, he said to me, he said, oh, I've got a manager's job going at Arkaringa. Would you be interested? So I said, no worries, I'll take that. So, yeah. So then um, I went up there a couple of weeks after my oldest girl was born, Abby. Um, and then Darren and Abby came up six weeks later. And if that name sounds familiar to anyone, so you mentioned the Williams before and that just then you mentioned Tony specifically. So Tony, I want to say he's in the 80s is the episode number and also – Cameron and Kirsty have done episodes as well. So again, small world on this podcast. Everyone knows everyone. Yeah. But so, and, and so that was, was that the second or that would have been like the third time you'd come back to work for the Williams? Yeah. Third time. Which is to me is not a surprise because I know them and they've got a great reputation and it is like a big, fam- well, it is a massive family, but even the people who don't have Williams as the last name, you become family. Yeah. I mean, I don't know yeah. if they've actually realized that I've just adopted myself into them. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so it was like you, you keep coming back to the Williams. Yeah, and they they treat you like family. Like they they're a brilliant people to work for. And, and Tony, like he's like he's a really good mentor. He um, yeah, I look up to him big time. So um, and yeah, he he like he always had the motto: work hard, play hard. So what? I guess that was your first job as a manager as well, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was. Yeah. Yep. So that must have been pretty exciting. Yeah, it was. And, and it, how old would you have been at the time, do you think? Um, so that was in 2000. So I was 20, 29. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so it had been, I guess, about a decade earlier or not quite that you'd been offered that head stop and roll and you're like, not ready, need to go out, get some more runs on the board, do a few more things. And then, you know, you kept at it and then the opportunity came up. and Yeah. And when I was at Wool... Like at Will Tanner for him, like I was sort of head stockman there as such mm. because, yeah, um, for the first, ah, uh, the last couple of years I was there. Um, it's very insightful so, yeah. that you knew your limits and to, I think there's, it could be quite easy given an opportunity just to be like, oh yes, and take it even if you're not ready for it. Um, but for you at that age of like 21 or 20, whenever you were offered the job from Ross to be like, oh, no, I don't think it's quite right yet. And to, to wait and then it did come along later on was I think it could be easy to be like, oh, well, I better take it now. I might not get another chance or I better, yeah, I just better do it now because yeah. it's an opportunity. You better say yes to all of them. But you said no and it, it still worked still, out for you. Yeah, it still worked out then the track. So, yeah. And um, when I was probably the, oh, I wouldn't say that, yeah, one of the hardest things was not long after I went to Arkaringa, like my youngest brother, Brett, come there to work for me. And yeah, him and myself used to, used to clash a bit. And he was only like compared to like my other brother Clayton. Um, at the time Clayton was working at Mount Barry for Tony. Um, and he, so Clayton myself, or he's a little bit taller than I am. So he's about six foot two and I'm six foot. And Brett was only about five foot nothing. And he was, but had attitude. He was used to sort of, yeah. He used to, um, put, like, just get cheeky to you. And although you were the boss, he didn't give a rat's ass. And he, yeah, 
Is that not so symbolic that as you're saying that, that like cars driving past yeah. kind of with all the attitude in the world? So, <laughs> but yeah. just coming past right now. And you'd say something to him and he'd just back chat you and then yeah, you'd want to kill him and then so you'd have to walk away and cool down a bit and you'd come back and he'd be, he was just like a little bull terry, he'd be just back into you again and then yeah. <laughs> So then you'd give him a bomb and then he'd go over and tell Darren, oh, Rob's just bombed the shit out of me, rah, 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 and then, yeah. But in saying that, um, he respected me and he always told, he never told myself, but he told other people that he learnt a fair bit from me, which was, which was good, but yeah. So it was interesting when we first went to Arkering, we, yeah, there was a lot of improvements that had to be done. So we sort of got chucked in the deep end a bit. Tony sort of didn't realise how much had to be done until we had a look around and then realised and, yeah. So we were there for not quite three years and um, in that three years we did a fair bit of work and at the, um, as in yard building, putting holding paddocks in, putting dams in. And then towards the end of it was um, when uh, the artesian scheme was going on. So all the artesian bores had to be shut down from bore drains and capped off. I think it was by 2005 or six. So yeah, we obviously got all the pipeline and all the troughs and tanks. So we installed all them at the same time. And yeah, that was, we were doing that one. It was summertime when we did that. And I had, uh, Matthew Williams that's now managing Anna Creek. He come up to give us a hand. He don't, he'd left school and he's still, I was talking to him only a couple of weeks ago down at, or a week ago down at William Creek and he was telling us the big yarn about it then that he had his graduation on the Friday at 3.30 and by 7.30 that night he was on a, on a bus heading for Arkaringa and then Tony, I think Tony picked him up from Cooper Petey like I th- think the bus got in daylight the next morning at Cooperpedia and then Tony picked him up and must have took him back to Mount Barry and then there was a Toyota for him there and he jumped in the Toyota and then, yeah, and he and got to Arkering at lunchtime and he said, and then by after lunch he was out working and, yeah, and I remember when we were putting this pipe, like doing the poly pipelines, it was stinking hot and when we were um, laying and we only could, like, um, we had to do it first thing in the morning because... By afternoon, it was too hot and the pipeline was coming out of the um, trenches that we were digging with the grader. So, so yeah, so he sort of was, yeah, thrown into the deep end, but no, it was all good. So Now, after your time at Arkaringo, you and Darren stepped out of the cattle industry for a while. Yeah, I wanted to do something different and where and probably money-wise was a wages of a fair bit more. So we opted to go into the... Lee Creek coal mine. To do that, oh, it was actually um, uh, where Darren's parents lived in Lee Creek. They lived next door to the mine manager. And I went and saw him and said, hey, I was wanting to get down in there. And um, he said to me, he said, the best thing you can do is get closer to Lee Creek. He said, so then if a job comes up, you can come in for the interview and all that. So that's when we made the... Uh, they were looking for an overseer at Wadalooner Station. And the bloke at the time managing it was Pete Moroni. So we went down there um, 
And I told Pete what we were going down to do, and he said, yeah, no worries, job's here for you. So it was actually by coincidence the bloke at the time that was at Word Luna as overseer was wanting out, and he was wanting to get closer to Coopedy, um, because that's where he originally come from. So we did a swap. He went to Arkering, I went to Word Luna. So then we spent 15 months at Word Luna before we went into the mines. That's where I got into probably welding, Pete Moroney was a brilliant yard builder and what he could make out of steel was just through the roof. So I learned a lot from him when it came to that. So then we went from there um, and then, yeah, happened to get a job in the mines. So when we first went in there, into the mine, I went in as a contractor and they just said to me, they said, mate, uh, whatever work you get thrown, take it. So that's what I did. I went in there and we were doing 12-hour shifts and I was working seven days a week and I was doing, like I think, sometimes, I reckon for the first bit of four or five weeks straight, we had a day off. And Darren at the time, she was working at the pub, so we'd go for a couple of weeks without seeing each other, although we were still sleeping in the same bed. She, because she was doing shifts at the pub in the night, so she'd do a close, she'd get home at one o'clock in the morning and then I'd be up and gone to work at 5.36 o'clock. Wow. So then by the time I'd come home from the mine at 6.30 that night, well, she'd be gone to work. So I'd go around to daycare and pick up the kids and then, yeah, and so on. So, yeah, and then I obviously did that until we went um, and then ended up the full-time job there. And the job that I never planned to do that, but um, the job we ended up doing in there was um, grit blasting spray painting. And, yeah, one fellow that was doing it, he hurt himself, so I ended up taking his job over and ended up full-time and, yeah. But I had the goal. I said, I'm going there for five years, no longer. And a lot of people said to me, once you get in here, you'll never come out. And after five years, I couldn't wait to get out of there. Really? You were able to stick to that goal? Yeah. You weren't lured in by the money or...? No. And I had a goal to have X amount of money saved up so I could buy myself a place, um, like a house, and then that's what we did. And after five years, more or less to the day, I said, that's it, I'm pulling the pin. And I just, I couldn't wait to get out of there. Mainly I just couldn't handle how everything I found in mines, like it's, um, they take your brain away. Like it's, it's, um, no common sense. Like common sense is not there. Like they don't, that's, yeah, it's like, kind of like a human of, robot, like, yeah. Just- Program. Give you all the yeah. things to do and you think just, yourself. You think you look at which is common sense on a station and you look at these things and they and you think, Oh, that's just common sense. But yeah. But obviously there's some people that can't think for themselves and yeah. And then another thing I couldn't handle was unions. Like it was yeah, a lot of things was and it's just you look and you think, Well, I'd like to see like after being in the station background and they're whinging about this and that and you think, oh, holy hell, that's nothing compared to what you do on the station. Mm. But, yeah. So, nah, so I got out of that and then, yeah, and then that's how um, we ended up, well, obviously then left Lee Creek and shifted to Alice Springs. Now, so, what was the plan when you were coming back up to the territory? So, with my youngest brother, Brett. Um, this is the bulldog one? Yeah. He... Um, although him and myself sort of used to argue a bit when we were working together at Arkaringa, we still got along pretty well. And, and he, um, said, I reckon we should go on a partnership. 
And I said, oh, Errol, what are we going to do? He said, well, you like welding and making stuff out of steel, he said, so. Um, and he's, and another bloke we'd been talking to, he said, there's no one in Alice Springs that does portable catalyst equipment. So he said, I think there's a big opening there. And at the time, Brett was, Brett was working for him, a fella called Tim Edmonds. And Brett was working for him, like mustering. Had been for a couple of years, like contracting. And then my, oh, like the next, my next brother up from Brett, he, Clayton, he'd spent a couple of years with Tim too. Anyway, so he said, um, I'm thinking about starting up my own contracting team. And I said, oh, righty, eh? I, so he said, would you be interested in helping us out? And I said, yeah, I guess so. So we went through and worked it all out. And then, um, there was a few people in the area that rang us and lined up to do work for them. And so Brett come down to Lee Creek. We did all the uh, paperwork and um, filled it, sorted all that out and then worked out these couple of jobs that we were going to do. And then um, a week later, he was killed in an accident. So, and, yeah, I sort of said, oh, well, I'll live the dream and still do what he wanted, wanted like what he would have wanted us to do. And so I come up, but obviously with the um, mustering side of things, I, um, like, I couldn't take on a contract because I, well, for a start, he was he was one that was sort of organising all that. My main job was, or the, was what we were going to do in the partnership was um, do the catalyst, like portable catalyst equipment and welding and all that sort of stuff. So in the end, I went went day raiding. First job I did when I came here was I went out to Amblindham and, and did a mushroom job there, and that's actually where he had his accident too. Was out there. So yeah, did that, um, and then I went from there to I did it um, help. Tim do a clean-up job at Coniston for a couple of months and then went from there. And then I spent a fair bit of time for the next four years at El Kedra helping Johnny and Amber with their mustering up there. But still did my... Um, and in between, when it was quiet, I'd do my, my portable catalyst equipment sort of business building, five-way race drafts, three-way race drafts, traps and all that sort of stuff. So must have been an incredibly tough blow to lose your brother... I mean, to lose any family member at any point in time would be really hard, but when you've got all these plans together about this kind of new chapter you're going to start, this big adventure and, and, and business venture, and then it just all... Yeah, it was. It was a fair kick in the guts, but yeah. But like as I say, when you get a kick in the guts, you get it back up again. And, so. and how did you so, go? Yeah. Like you mentioned, he he'd had an accident out at Anne Belindum, and that was one of the first places you went when you got back up here. You went out and did some work out there. How how was that being on that same place? Yeah, it was sort of that was no um, no worries really. The probably the thing that was the hardest is they never actually knew exactly what happened. Like there was a firearm that was involved, and obviously he went to shoot a bull, um, and it's gone off, and somehow the bullets end up getting him instead. And like the the coroner said that. He had more chance of winning the lottery than what actually, than how it happened to him. And yeah, we've, I, I went out there not, not long after I started mustering to have a look at the scene. And yeah, I can never work out, um, how it happened. And they still, from this day to that, got no idea how it actually happened or, yeah. So yeah, obviously he went to shoot a ball and the bullets ricocheted off of something 
and it's come back and got him. And um, it actually went into his eye. They reckon if it hit anywhere on his head, um, anywhere else, it wouldn't have ever penetrated his um, skull. So just unlucky. So it's just, yeah, just a freak accident. He he was on his quad and he's obviously, as he went to shoot the ball, the, um, the quads hit a tree and rolled the quad. And then that's obviously when it's things have gone to shit. So Just so, like yeah. you said, a freak accident yeah. and a just, catastrophic turn of events. Yeah, and just one of those things that just, yeah, just happened and, yeah. And like the coroner said, the, the chances of that happening, because I guess, you know, to hit – for the bullet to hit something to then ricochet to come back on you, like, of anything it could have hit at any angle of what it could have hit, like, like you said, the chances of that hitting something where it's going to come back at you versus yeah. keep going. Um, yeah. More chances so, of winning the lottery. Yeah. So just unlucky. So, yeah. So you had to kind of, so, yeah, forge on afterwards. Yeah. And so it was, it was thing, but I just um, knew that Brett, he would have liked it. So that's what we did. So, yeah, just um, soldiered on and. So then in 2010, um, it was a really, really wet year. Well, in 2009 was dry. I think it was the driest year on record in Alice Springs. 2010, 15 mil from being the wettest year in record in Alice Springs. So it just kept raining and raining and, and then, um, so in 2009, I think they had 63 mil for the year, something like that. And, 2010, 700 and something, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Holy. And it just kept raining and raining, so obviously there was no mustering going on much, so that's when I got into the portal Cattleyata building equipment big time and, yeah, started um, getting pretty productive with it. It was that wet, like they always say, if you see the Todd run three times, you're a local. Oh, we had friends that come across for the Transport Hall of Fame reunion and they were here in a bus. They were camped here for, I think it was six weeks. They saw it run four times. <laughs> so they said, oh, we must be local. <laughs> but, yeah, so then everything was going good um, and um, with the business there and we were starting to get gear up into the top end and then there was gear going across into the Pilbara and then into the Channel Country and then come along uh, the... Um, when the live export was banned and it went from flat out to nothing overnight and that, that continued like that for the next 18 months. Like just, we hardly did any welding jobs. So obviously I went back, um, was back mastering again and then there was a couple of government contracts that come up for doing chain mesh fencing at community so I did that. I didn't go much on it. And then, yeah, like I said, 18 months after is when it sort of, it come good f- for around here locally. Um, and so that's when I started back into it again. And then 2013, I gave up mastering and, yeah, just full-time welding. So. When it comes to the live export ban, I think for anyone, whether or not they're involved in the industry or if it's just anyone in the country, kind of, remembers that time and the immediate impacts on cattle producers in Northern Australia and those who relied on the trade. And there was a lot of discussion about how there were these flow-on effects throughout the whole industry. But I think even even when we were preparing for this episode, I was still caught a bit surprised because you're all the way down here. And I know that there were impacts 
on the domestic market for years because of cattle that weren't going overseas and just, you know, there were so many things that happened. But when I think of people in, connected to the industry that were impacted, I think of, say, um, Tom Curtin, who's been on our podcast twice. It was our very first episode and how his current um, business came about was during the live export ban. He was breaking in horses up in Catherine and overnight, obviously no work because no money. But then I think about how you've basically gone through the exact same thing as him, but you're all the way down here. And I just don't know if I would have made that connection to think that there were people this far south being impacted in the yeah. same way. and it did. Like, And because um, obviously we'd started getting gear up in the top end and and um, the bloke that we were dealing through with the elders, he rang me and he said, mate, those five-way race drafts you are making, he said, everyone loves them. He said, they, um, he said if you could send a road train up, he said, it'll be brilliant. And I said, well, I haven't got that many. I can send one up for now. And he said, oh, that, that'll be okay. So then we sent that up and I think it got there the day before when it was banned. And then it just, that was it. It just, like he said, he reckons he could have sold 15 the day before. And then once it got banned, that was it. Nothing. Just gone. So yeah. So that one sat there for, I think it was two years before it got sold. And it just, and that's the thing, a lot of people didn't realise how much it impacted on people. And the same, like I had a cousin in Western Australia, um, Warren Schmidt, he had a place, a couple of places north of Carnarvon, and um, in the end he had to sell up because it all sent him broke. And that's when, when that um, obviously um, the class action was won against the government they, because his son at the time, Riley, uh, he would have only been probably five or six, and he he um, sent a um, a letter to the prime minister wanting um, to know why his parents have lost their places, why they went and banned it, because he said it's not right. And this is from a five year old kid, and um, so when that class action was against the government and it was one like they actually rang him and to see what he was doing and they read the letter and that out on the thing and they interviewed like Warren's wife Squeak on the ABC and like she said she said you can't put a value on it of how when it comes to that and yeah and like obviously now Warren's back in Carnarvon and and lucky he did an apprenticeship so he could fall back on that um, as a plumber so now he's got a big plumbing business there and now Riley's son's working for him, but yeah. Shout out so. to anyone listening in the Carnarvon region. Go use Warren Schmidt as your plumber. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah. But, um, and that's, yeah, like I said, just, it's unreal how it just impacted so many people. And, and like I said, so businesses just started to pick up. You're getting a phone call saying, can you fill a road train of your, of your drafts? So for anyone listening that's not familiar with what that is, can you just explain what, what these drafts were? So it's a five way race draft. Obviously you put it in a race. Um, just like a laneway that you put cattle yeah, in, yeah, like a single yeah, file laneway. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, um, it's set up a, so you can stand up above it and operate and drive five, draft five ways. Um, and when we designed it, it was like there was different, there was obviously different ones around already. And we sort of put a bit of this one, a bit of that in and, and got different people's ideas. And, and mm. that's how we, um, ended up the design from there. And probably for occupation, health and safety, where you yeah, to operate it, it's safe. Like mm. 
there's nothing sort of go wrong with it. So, yeah, and that's where a lot of people liked it and, yeah. So, yeah, so. one day it's fill up a road train, send it up here and you just probably seen dollar signs. Yeah. It's like, great, yeah. business, business booming. Yeah. Next week. Next week, next, nothing. The, the one you had sent up there that they're like, oh, what can you send us now? You're like, I've got one in stock. So you send it up there. Next minute, it takes two years to sell because of the flow and impacts of yeah. how, what it took industry to recover. So it just makes it, yeah, it made it hard. And, yeah, like I said, lucky I had mustering go back and do and, yeah, um, else it could have been a totally different story. That's that's something you do full time now, and you are sort of known for this work that you do and the quality equipment that you produce. Something else you're also very well known for. I love the look on your face. You're like, where is this going? Uh, it's Bronco branding and your involvement in that sport and your love of it. Um, again, thinking of listeners who may have never heard the word Bronco branding before uh, and have no idea what it is, can you give us a bit of a rundown of that? Yeah, so obviously it's a traditional way of back in the day, how they ran cattle. Um, obviously, they had a big yard uh, with a Bronco panel um, and you'd catch your calf and bring it up to the panel and then put your leg ropes on to brand it and all that. So they'd cut their fats out or whatever first and then they'd yard what's left and then that's when they'd brand them. Sometimes they didn't have a yard, so they'd do it out in the flat with a forky tree and um, just use the fork in the tree to, for the rope to go through. And then bring them up and then obviously, um, leg rope them and then pull them over there. So in, I reckon it was 83, I think off the top of my head. Um, um, there was RM Williams and Ted Hayes. And I, th- I'm pretty sure that, um, Gordon Lillycrap was tied up with it as well from Todd Moore in South Australia. They decided to have a competition. And they held the first one here in Alice Springs. And we were actually happened to be at Bond Springs mustering at the time with the old man. And so we come in for it. And then like Tony Williams, he come up for it from Mount Barry and it, um, he got second in it that year. Um, so he liked the idea and saw it. So he then started one at Udendata that August. Um, then they actually had it. I reckon it was at Welburn Hill Station is where it was held to. So since then, they've had one every, like, have one every year at Udnadatta. Um, we try and get down for it as often as we can. And I think in the last 22 years, I've missed out on two at Udnadatta. So they used to have one at the show. They had one for when, for Billy Hayes' memorial. And I reckon, I can't remember what year that was. I think it was 2012 or 13. Now this is this is Billy Senior. Yeah. And so yep. we've had his I love another connection. We've had his grandson Luke on the podcast. But also for anyone that's heard the poem Turbulence. Yeah. That's the Billy Hayes that they're talking about yep. in that poem. Okay. Yep. So they had a thing for his memorial, so there's high fellas from Udnadatta area come up for it and um then there was a few local teams here that we went into it. Anyway, as it was going happening, I just said to Benny Hayes, I said it's a pity that there's not one here all the time, I said, because of um, competition. I said, because um, it originated here in Alice Springs, the first one. And then, then obviously, they had one at Mount Skinner that they continued for, I think that went for seven or eight years after. And then there was one at Udnadatta. And then Tony Williams actually, with a group of blokes, went across to Stonehenge in Queensland. And that's where... Um, 
over the, where Tony's um, father-in-law Jimmy Nunn. Jimmy Nunn is yeah. Yeah. Which they refer to Jim as God. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And um and he he like when it comes to Bronco Brown he's a really good catcher, and they did a demo, and then obviously Stonehenge must have thought well we'll take the rap for having. And so you, when you walk, drive into Stonehenge, there's a big sign, Stonehenge, the home of Bronco branding. Liars. Yeah. So anyway, <laughs> and to, to, every time you mention that to Tony, he's, the hair on the back of his neck stands up. But yeah. So um, yeah. So it so, all originated in Alice Springs. Yeah. That's where learn the, something new every day. That's where the first competition was. And it was yeah. Ted, one of the well, because there's a couple of Ted Hayes, but oh, the most recent one. Yeah. And R. M. Williams. Yeah. Which yep. can we also just take a moment to realise? So Aaron Williams, when he's alive and kicking, starting Bronco running competitions, what a world away that is from the legacy today. Yeah, yeah. So that's so. Anyway, so when I said to Benny about it, and I said how his grandpa had started it, and and he said, "Well, I'd like to have one at Rocky Hill on Undulia." So I said, "Well, we'll make it happen." So then um, they did a ride for Men's Health, um, like on horses. They from um, Undulit Ross River, and I said, "Well, how about do it backwards and go from Ross River to Rocky Hill, and then at the end of it, we'll have a Bronco branding competition." So there was another fellow that was involved with that, Shane Muldoon. So then we got together, and that's when we decided to run it. Um, but instead, they did a ride just from the Undulit Homestead out to Rocky Hill that day, and then on the Friday, then on the Saturday, we had um, the competition. And there was a fair few from Muda Data come up for it. And, um, yeah, it turned out to be a pretty good show. So then they, um, we continued on and we come part of the South Australian, um, like they have a, like a, um, competition down there. That, so there's Quorn, We and Creek, Uda Data, and you get X amount of points. And then obviously then you have your winners at the end. And, um, so we come part of the point system for that. And then in 2000 and, 18, we had the Australian Championships here. And, um, it was, yeah, it was, that was good. It's so. incredible what you guys have all built. I came down in 2020 for the Undulia Bronco branding. And that's, I specifically came, it was the first time I'd ever been south of Tennant Creek. And I came down specifically for that event. And I was staying with the cooks out at Aileron. Yep. And I was going to have a go on Craig's Mare. What's her name? It's like, Oh, that, fatty or that, yeah, yeah, fatty, that, yeah. Yeah, little, is that a name? Is yeah. it fatty or fat? Uh, yeah, something, fatty. Something to do with little grey horse. Yeah, something to do with her being obese. And I was like, that poor horse. She needs a new name. Um, but I think because she hadn't done it that much, and because I was brand new, and I was just so blown away at that event that they're like, oh no, we're going to put you on this horse, Ugly Betty, which is your horse. And it's funny you, you go to these events and you see kind of the same few horses. In, you know, it doesn't matter how many people are there and how many teams are there. I'd never even tried it in my life. I'd done some a different, very different type of roping, which I've looked back now. So in Bronco Branding, um, so you have your rope in your right hand, but you throw over their neck because it's attached on the left side of the horse, and you just you don't swing it around like in the cowboy movies. You just kind of it's like this flick of the wrist thing. But all the roping I'd done was in America, where you do swing it around yeah. there, and but you also go and throw off the right-hand side of the horse. And anyway, it was a hot mess. Like somebody videoed me doing it at my request and I've not been able to watch it back. I think I watched it as I scrolled through really fast and I was like, I don't want to watch that ever again. Didn't catch anything. But you loaned me Ugly Betty and God knows how many other people that day borrowed – stop calling Ugly Betty, just Betty. She's not ugly at all. Um, 
And that's like the community you guys have that you guys didn't know me from a bar of soap. You gave me, you let me borrow your saddle, your horse, showed me what to do. Like it's just the most incredible community around. I feel like whereas camp drafting can be very, um, and not, I mean, it's not, not everywhere and not with everyone, but it can be a bit like clicky and who's got the better horse and it's all very yeah. competitive. Whereas Bronco Brownie's like, you want to have a go? Come on in. Like, and you guys were talking me through it as I was out there riding. You were like, oh, I'll go for that one or, you know, do this or that. Like, just so help, like just the community. So, yeah. yeah. So, so Betty's obviously, um, um, now that I'm shifting to South Australia, I've sent her down to, um, the peak with Cam Williams. Mm-hmm. Also oh. been on the podcast. And episode she's, 102. <laughs> she's actually at, um, or well, she's, um, last week she got sent across the Nilpon and she's, um, having a bit of a home there for a bit. And, um, yeah, the same thing. I went down before we did data. We had a practice day, um, at Nilpuna and, um, a few young fellas wanting to learn to catch. So old Betty stepped up once again and yeah. And just because she's, um, she knows what she's doing and she's bomb proof. And yeah, so, so, um, a lot of the young blokes have been using her down there and the same at William Creep when we went in last weekend. She was got used. Bit, fair bit down there as well so but it's not just the horse it's the fact that you're willing to share her and the gear and and take your time to explain how it works yeah, to and people and the same way i look in it as in like it's a good australian sport it's a traditional way of doing it and i i'd hate to see it fold like i'd so that's why i reckon the more young people you get involved the more chance it's got on living on and that's um the reason why we do it so and plus to help each other out and yeah. Yeah. I just so. think it's incredible what all you guys do and particularly you with like just, just that community spirit, everybody helping each other out, sharing horses, sharing gear, coaching each other. Like it is, it is a competitive sport, but at the same time, it isn't in a way. Like, yeah, there's some people there that, and you're always going to have a winner and stuff, but it's not like, Oh, well, I'm here to win. And because of that, I'm not going to, I better not let anybody else borrow my horse. Cause what if they go in and have a better run and they do better? Like, it, there's nothing like that in this community. Yeah. Like, everyone's just like, yeah, jump on in, have a go. Like, well, that's like when on. last weekend when we went down to William Creek. Um, so there was Cam and myself. Um, we teamed up together and went in the doubles and, um, we were the first ones out. So we got a team of 501, well, time of 501 76. Um, and then I lent my horse to Chris Reynolds and he caught with his partner, Bridie. And, um, and they, they beat us. <laughs> Their time was 5.01.56. So point two of a second between first and second. <laughs> Cam reckons we should have protested. He reckoned the bloke on the whistle was a bit too slow for us. <laughs> um, and then Tony ran, his team ran third, him and Colin Greenfield. And they're also only, been on the podcast, both of those. And they were only 13 seconds behind us. So it was close competition and yeah, but that's how it is. Um, and at the end of the day, um, long as we've had a good time and yeah, enjoyed ourselves. Yeah. So oh, I absolutely love it. Um, you did mention just a moment ago that you're shifting down to South Australia. So as we, I guess we kind of wrap up the episode, I guess that's kind of the last thing to talk about is that the Bronco branding, um, the big focus was Broken Spur. That's an org- – would you call it an organisation or a – Yeah, probably an organisation, yeah. Yeah, that promotes men's health. Men's health. So tell me a bit about Broken Spur and then I guess your journey moving back so, to South. So that was set up with Shane Muldoon. Um, he he was diagnosed with 
prostate cancer. Um, obviously here in Alice Springs. Anyway, they told him they'd get back in contact with him, let him know what he had to have for treatment, rah, rah, rah. And I think he waited for a bit and didn't hear back from him. So he thought, well, I'd better do something about this. So he went down south and got help and got it all sorted. And then I think it was nine months later, he got a phone call or a letter or something to say, oh, you've got an appointment with so-and-so. And he said, shit, I've already sorted it out. If I'd left it, I'd be dead. Nine? Like, he could have grown a whole child in yeah. that time. Yeah. So um, what it come, So then his plan was... He was going to ride a horse from here to Canberra and then have the horse shit on the front lawn of the <laughs> Canberra at the Parliament House. But then he obviously looked at the distance and he thought, well, I don't ride a horse and it's a long way. <laughs> so then that's when they decided to do the, um, to do the journey at, uh, Ross River. Ross River. Yeah. So, so then we promoted men's health and yeah. yeah. And then, um, then same thing last year. Um, not long after the Bronco branding, um, yeah, I got a bit crook one day and then discovered that I've got cancer as well. So, so now, um, going down that same path, um, obviously I had to have operation and, um, and then now I'm having chemo treatment, but I think, fingers crossed, uh, we're on top of it. Um, everything's looking pretty positive. So my doctor's just said to me, when we first went in to have a meeting, they said, look, this is what's going to happen. You'll have chemo, um, and then once chemo's done and gets sorts or gets the cancer sort of sorted out down to where we, like with your tumour markers down near zero, um, we'll put you on medication. And then, um, and this medication obviously puts a coating around the tumours. Um, so obviously it started off from a bowel and then it's jumped from a bowel to my liver. Um, so I've had a operation on my bowel, so I've now got a um, like a bag. So that side of it sorted out. So now I'm busy sorting out the tumours on my liver. They reckon that it's everything's turning out well. So um, this coating then it puts a coating around the tumours to stop them from spreading. Um, but they told me they can only guarantee it for two years. But they said that's only like for legal reasons. They said, but it could for 20 years, 30 years. But all they said is that we recommend that it, that you sh- or not shift, but if you um, go somewhere where you want to be and just in case something does go paired shape. So Darren and myself had actually, well, about four or five years ago, we bought a place down at Streaky Bay, South Australia. Every year um, I go fishing there. I started going fishing there in 94. Used to always go down with a few mates and then obviously, once Darren and myself got together and the girls come along, we started going down with them. And all of us loved it down there, so bought a place there. Um, so that's where I'm shifting to. Actually, this time next week, I'll be on the road down there. So I was going to sell my business and tried to sell it. Sort of no one was really interested in it. But in the end, we decided we'd keep it. So I'm going to lease a shed down there and do the same stuff. Because I said to Darren, I need something to keep me busy. Yeah. So, and being told from the locals down there that you, um, you know what the r- rule is down here. And I said, well, what, what's the rule? And they said, you work on the windy days and fish on the calm days. <laughs> nice. So that is a so, good yeah. rule to live by. Yeah. So, um, 
So, and it's always windy down there, sort of from uh, sort of set, beginning of September through until uh, end of March. So that's probably when most of my work will get done. <laughs> and the rest of the time, when it's calm, I'll be kick thinking, back and throwing a line. Yeah, yeah, that's so, amazing. So now it'll be a bit of a different, bit of a change, sea change as such. But yeah, yeah. Well, I guess how long has it been that you've been in Alice now? This is our fifteenth year. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, because I'm just thinking back on your story, you've you've lived quite a few different places and moved around a bit, but this is probably the biggest stint you've done in one solid location. Yeah. Is here. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yep. But you know, so. guaranteed, you'll be able to look back in twenty years and be like, "Well, I've been in Streaky Bay twenty years now, and that's been longer than I was ever in Alice." Yeah, so. that's right. That's hopefully the plan. So yeah. Yeah. So and the same thing. There's um, we're looking forward to because there's. A lot of events that we've never got to that we want to go to down there. And yeah. yeah. And same thing. I'll be still doing a Bronco branding like there's one at, in Quorn in, um, end of October. So we'll go down for that or across for it. Yeah. And I'd say that'll be quick or a good trip because it'll only be 450k. So, <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> Just popping down the road, you yeah. know? Yeah. So, Gosh. so yeah. So much has happened already and I, I look forward to, you know, I don't know if this podcast will still be going in 20 years. Let's all hope. But, um, coming back in like 20 years and seeing, seeing where everyone what's, is. Yeah. What's happened? Like yeah. we kind of covered the last like 20 something years and we're going to cover the next one shortly. Um, I know there's the few people that you've mentioned in this podcast. I just wanted to touch base on them again because I know when we spoke off air that they've kind of had a bit of an influence in your life. So I thought as we get to the end, it might be a good opportunity just to say a few words about them and reflect on that. And I know you'd mentioned, um, your dad and Pete Maroney and Tony Williams. Yeah, with dad, he was, um, like he was like tough on us kids. Um, like as in made sure you worked and you did your jobs and that. And you look back when you were kids, we probably looked and thought, oh, he's a bit of an old bugger for doing it. Um, but now you look at it and you think, well, He's probably the one that gave us the worth ethic, um, to get where we are now. Um, yeah, he was, he was like strict, but at the same time, he still used to take you places and like used to take Jim Carners and all that sort of stuff. And yeah, which we, um, enjoyed. So yeah. Um, and so when it come to that, we sort of looked up at him a fair bit and he taught us a fair bit about horses and cattle and whatever else when it come to that as well. Um, Probably, um, when it come to welding and that sort of stuff, he wasn't sort of really into that. Um, and that's where a bloke like Pete Moroni, when I worked for him, like what he taught me and when it come to building yards and welding and all that, he was just through the roof. Like he, yeah. Um, and he, he was one of them blokes that everything had to be spotless, like just, and so when it come to that, just yeah, brilliant. Um, I learned a lot from him heaps. And then Tony, well, yeah, he was um just taught same thing, taught you so much. And to work for him, he was he was just not he he like he was your boss, but he wasn't like a boss. He was yeah, just like one of the normal blokes. Um, just yeah, um, and his. His motto was always work hard, play hard. And yeah, we, like when I was at Arkaringa, we had some, Tony and myself had some pretty, pretty long nights and yeah, we used to get into a bit of trouble. 
like the first night I went across, um, after we went to Arkaringa, we went across for Tony's birthday. And, um, and then that night, well, I thought it was only early, but Darren reckoned it was a bit late. I think it was two o'clock in the morning, something. She said, we're going home. And I said, well, I'm not ready to go home yet, Darren. And she said, well, I am. And I, and she said, are you coming or what? And I said, oh. And with that, she jumped in the Toyota and away she went. And I just said to look at Tony and I looked at the tail lights and I said, oh, she'll be back in a minute. And then he said, them tail lights seem to be getting a lot further away, Robbie. Anyway, I said, yeah, well, it looks a bit like that. And then I said, oh shit, she left my, didn't even leave my swag behind for me. So then that night I shared a, <laughs> um, bed with another fella, Tim Williams, <laughs> head to toe with him. And yeah, um, and then bloody, um, Tony said to me, he said, mate, he said, yeah, it'll be, um, he said, that won't be the first time that'll happen. <laughs> he said, it's happened to me a few times and yeah. So, but now it's good. It's funny. I just can't picture that with Tony because when I met him last year, maybe the year before, for the, no, last year would have been the first time I'd say. And he was just such a like, like a gentle old soul, you know, delightful. I mean, he's not old, but older man. Um, and then you told me a few stories off air. Like, I'm like, no, Tony was but, never young and wild. What are you talking but, about? Yeah, we'd, we'd be sitting there and come, I don't know, three, four o'clock in the morning. He'd be looking across it and thinking, oh, it's time to go home. And like Pat's, he'd be saying to him, come on, Tony, we've got to go shortly. And the next one, he'd go and get a stubby cooler and stick his glass of rum in that. And then he'd have a, either like a bottle of rum hidden somewhere and he'd just look across and keep topping your drink up and his. And so then she couldn't see how much was left in there. And then, yeah, then he'd always say, one more, no more. And then, yeah, so. I know that is definitely something I've learnt today and I'm going to take that saying with me, one but, more, yeah. no more. But, yeah, so, but no, it, used to be, it was good fun. So, yeah. Oh, gosh, there's, yeah, there's just been so much that we've covered and what an incredible story so far and yeah still got a while a ways to go um so yeah 20 years book me in i'll be back we'll do part two yep <laughs> for my final question um now that you've had a bit of warning apparently i didn't give robbie any warning before i got here even though it's the final question every episode you'd be surprised how many people who do listen to episodes still get caught out and like oh i forgot about that part looking back on your life so far what would you say is the major takeaway lesson? Yeah, oh, I, oh, I don't know. So that's a bit of a hard one. I always reckon that oh, my dad always had a saying that um, he'd always say that you don't have to work for the best man to learn anything. Um, he reckons that even if you work for the Worst man, he said, you still learn something. And I said, oh, what's that, Dad? He said, you learn not what to do. Um, but, yeah, so. So just keep learning even if you think there's a place. Yeah, and like he said, although you think you're not learning, he said, you actually, yeah, you, you mightn't be learning the right way, so you say, oh, don't do it that way. And, yeah, and different things I've looked back on, and, and he's right. And he said, and the same, he said, and learn by your mistakes. 